Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds about the ideas that matter politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine. This week we've got a special episode where we talk to our friend and regular Andrew Adonis about the political animal and the art of political biography. Andrew's recently written for us about Joe Biden and Narendra Modi and he's also got profiles in the works on Ursula von der Leyen and Boris Johnson. He's written a hit biography of Ernie Bevin and is working on another about none other than Tony Blair. So what is the political character and how do you set about writing one? Last week, Andrew joined me and a group of our most loyal readers at a special Editors Club event to answer these questions. Now, the Editors Club allows readers to get behind the scenes of the magazine, sharing, supporting and getting involved with the publication they love. If you're interested in that, go to prospectmagazine.co.uk add forward slash and then learn dash more dash now. That's prospectmagazine.co.uk slash learn dash more dash now. But for now, we've presented you an edited version of my discussion with Andrew. Um, afternoon, everyone. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect Magazine. We're delighted to welcome you to this Editors Club event. And I'm delighted, too, to um, introduce our new contributing editor, who, in fact, goes back with Prospect a very long way, but has taken on a more regular perch here only in the last few months, Andrew Adonis, who many of you will know is a um, Head honcher at one point in number 10, was also a schools minister, in the past has been a historian and uh, has also chaired the National Infrastructure Commission. So he's done a whole lot of different things, but he's writing about a whole lot of different things for us now. In particular, we've got Andrew doing a weekly newsletter that if you haven't signed up for, you certainly should, called The Insider that comes out on a Wednesday morning. We might have a word about that. But the main thing I wanted to uh, discuss with Andrew today was really the art of political biography, because Andrew is writing for us a series of profiles in power. And as 2021 has got underway, we've had three so far. Um, we've had um, Joe Biden, the new president of the United States. We've had Narendra Modi. Actually, I say we've had three so far. I've had three so far because I'm 
editing the next one down the slipstream, which is going to be Ursula von der Leyen. And uh, I think we can exclusively reveal just now that come the summer double issue, we'll be looking at Andrew writing about Boris Johnson. So it's going to go from lively to livelier, perhaps. So without further ado, welcome to you, Andrew. And um, the first question I'd like to ask you is, what do you think the difference is between writing biography and writing history in general? I should say that as well as what you've been doing for us, you've written a biography recently of Ernest Bevin and another one in the works on Tony Blair. Well, biography is a, a sub is a subsection of history. Uh, a lot of the uh, processes are the same: the accumulation of evidence, the, the treatment of sources. Uh, the records are usually pretty similar. They're mainly books and and manuscript records, and now increasingly online historical materials and so on. So, I think the the actual technique of doing the research is very similar. The difference is that biography is, of course, always the story of a human being, and it's the story of the human being in the round, which is partly about events, partly about social movements and ideas, but it's also very much about the individual and their individual characteristics, including their individual sort of physiological characteristics, their mood characteristics, all of those things. And in my view, the, the, the better that biographies deal with the individual human being and bring them to life, uh, the better they are. And the less they deal with them and the more they resemble a, a, just a classic his, historical account of one event after another or, uh, or one set of situations after another or look at ideas in the abstract, the less satisfactory they are as a biography is, uh, is, uh, is very much my view. And I was very struck. I've only written one full-length biography. They've written lots of biographical essays. But as you uh, kindly mentioned, my biography of Ernie Bevin came out last year. So I was to some extent doing this for the first time and thinking through how I do it. And I'm very struck that most people think that the most um, that the, the, the two most interesting stroke exciting chapters were one which is simply called Ernie, which is all about his personal characteristics across his whole life from birth mm -hmm. to death. Uh, the respects in which he was larger than life, how he dressed, the places he lived. You know, his, his great passions and, and loves, his relationship with his wife and all of that done over time, his relationship with his daughter, uh, how he liked to sing. And he was, he'd been a Methodist lay preacher in his youth and how that in, in, infused the whole way he made speeches and addressed life thereafter. They thought that was the, uh, a, a great chapter. And that wasn't really rooted in any particular set of, of, of dates beyond the parameters of his life as a whole. And the other was this head-to-head -head contest, which is dominates the last phase of his career as foreign secretary between him and Joseph Stalin, which is literally a kind of Manchian struggle between them for mastery in Europe, which thank God in Western Europe at any rate, um, Ernie won. And uh, that's written very much as a, as, a, as a personal struggle between the two, including you know, an account of the Potsdam Conference of, of July 1945, where, they, where Ernie starts shouting 
at Stalin across the table. Amazing, you think about it. This great, this is Stalin at his at his in his absolute pomp, you know, with that white uniform and buttons and all of that. And Ernie tells him that uh, no way are we giving you Poland on this basis, and you're keeping out of Germany and so on. And actually, starts shouting. Well, well, the uh, mouse like Mr. Attlee with his pipe sits next to him, and indeed Truman. Uh, in Atlee's case, nodding, and in Truman's case, remaining totally impassive. And in response to this barrage from Bevin, Stalin goes ill for the next two days and refuses to come to the conference and announces that he's got a cold, which um, it's very clear is a Bevin-induced uh, bout of flu. And that's a very human struggle between the two. I think it's just as interesting as the actual issues at, at stake and trying to bring that to life, I thought was important. So it's a subsection of history, biography, but it does have its own special attributes and the the key i think to making a biography work is that you bring the human being alive and they become interesting as a human being as well as the material that they're dealing with in, including their their dealings with other very interesting human beings and across the whole of the 20th century i doubt you'll get two more interesting human beings than um than ernie bevin and joseph Stalin. i can see in the background there i think gladstone um, gladstone and- yep knew very well, I think, Roy Jenkins, who wrote biographies of Gladstone and Churchill, two kind of big, perhaps the two biggest political personalities of the first half of, uh, well, 1850 to the 1950 era. Do you think you learnt at his knee, as it were, in terms of uh, thinking about all of this? A lot. Roy only ever wrote biographies. He, he never wrote an autobiography, he wrote an autobiography, and, and biographical essays. He wrote a lot of, of short essays some of which he published together, that was his mode of addressing the past. And part of the reason, because Roy Jenkins was an extraordinary human being as well. I was very nearly his biographer. I did all the research for it, but I was in government, so I didn't have time to write it. So John Campbell wrote the, the official biography, and it's a very good book too. But Roy Jenkins is interesting as a, a to read about. I would say now more because of his extraordinary human characteristics I mean, this was an amazing bon viveur who was a socialist politician in an age of fairly straight-laced morality, had a string of, of, uh, of lovers, uh, and, and, and. I mean, you know, his love of fine wine and fine living and all of that was, was extraordinary. Uh, the way he lived his life was uh, remarkable, an extraordinary love of travel, constantly on the move and so on. And I would say that the interest in Roy, the abiding interest in Roy Jenkins is at least as much because he's this extraordinary larger-than-life human being than that he was the creator of monetary union. Right. Although there's a big sort of series of reforms in the Home Office as well, aren't there? But let's not, let's not get lost too far down the Roy route because the, the other person that you've worked extremely closely with is Tony Blair. Now, you're going to be writing a biography of him. How does that work when you're kind of friends with him and you... You know, he was your boss and uh, you're a very public defender of him as his reputation's become more controversial. How can you write a rounded biography of Tony Blair? Well, that's a big challenge. And I'm his official biographer. It's a very big challenge. I don't believe there's any such thing as the objective biography. All biographies are subjective. They're written by one human being about another human being. There is a difference between those that follow rules of evidence and those that don't. You know, there's a famous biography of Ronald Reagan called Dutch, which is written in the form partially of a novel. Actually, it's quite an interesting way of doing it, but I think it fails. I'm interested maybe that there are people on this call who take a different view. The reason I think it fails is it elides between 
fictional and factual. I mean, literally fictional, the complete making up of conversations and people in, in, in the story. And I found that profoundly unsatisfactory because it meant that uh, you, you weren't sure what was quote unquote true and what wasn't true. And therefore you distrusted everything in it. And it only would have really worked as a, a work of complete fiction, mm. which, which it wasn't. So, uh, so there is a difference, I think, between being subjective in the sense of novelistic and, and creating a whole new and different uh, reality and abiding by rules of evidence in the sense of things that did happen, quoting from letters which were written and accurately and so on. But beyond that, all biographies are, are works which are subjective. The question is whether the subjectivity is regarded by the reader as, from their point of view, attractive. I mean, either attractive in that they agree with it or attractive in the sense that they think it makes for a good book. And that will be, I think, the judgment of me, me on Tony Blair. The pluses for me doing Tony Blair is that because uh, I was a friend of his and he, I worked for him and knew him extremely well, I have access to material, including a lot of, of, I mean, hundreds of encounters, which enable me also to, to recreate the picture of this human being. So I hope it'll be a much fuller mm-hmm. and uh, much more um, pointillistic biography than you'd be able to get if you didn't have that relationship. I'm certainly following rules of evidence in terms of the actual treatment of sources. Will it be favourable? Uh, yes, of course it will be overall, because I am basically favourable to him. Will it be hagiographical, which is a difference between being favourable and hagiographical? I hope not, but that will be in the eye of the beholder. I'm certainly not going to say I think that, he, that the Iraq war was his finest hour. I mean, you know, I, I, I do have a, a sort of sense of um, success and failure and what constitutes each. I think the biggest challenge, actually, in some ways, isn't that uh, I'm sympathetic to him or that I work for him or that he's a friend of mine. The biggest challenge, I think, is that I, I might well be publishing while he's alive. He's only 67 and he's in very good health at the moment. So there's a good chance I'd be publishing it while he's alive. And that does have two particular issues. The first is it means that his life isn't over. And so you, it can only be interim because it, the life isn't even completed. And the second is, I don't think there can be any doubt about the fact that uh, I will be conscious as I'm writing it of the fact that he will read it. Mm. Uh, and I, that will definitely, as I just can't get around the fact that, that will definitely have some bearing on how I handle him as a subject. It's not a new um, challenge. Some of that at least isn't a new challenge. I think Morley wrote a biography of Gladstone and I think Michael Foote wrote one of Bevan. So people writing on their heroes is not a new phenomenon. Let's think about now, before we get into the details of the, the series as it's evolving that you've been doing for us, let's think about whether you think there's anything in general you could say about personalities that can get and thrive at the top of politics what traits if any are you looking out for when you want to see if a personality is going to cut it in politics or not well I increasingly think that the skills of the politician in terms of the capacity to project are those of the actor and acting skills which are essentially skills of 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 empathy with the people that you're uh, constantly interacting with, skills of projection, the an extrovert nature. These characteristics, I think, are, are generally evident 
in politicians who succeed. They're not universal. There are exceptions to all of them. And sometimes you get people who are charismatic and, and extrovert, but in a, in, a, in a curiously subdued way. It comes through in a quite a subdued way. I think Joe Biden might be in that category, actually. A guy who's uh, very, very skilled at the job of politics, whose latest act as president is to play it in a very low-key way. Now, those who know about Joe Biden and know his history know he is perfectly capable of playing it in a very extrovert way. Now, this is the guy who literally grabbed Slobodan Milosevic by the lapels when he was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and was uh, on a visit to Belgrade. But he's not playing the presidency like that. He's playing the presidency very, as he sees it, and he's projecting it in a very elevated presidential way, you know, constantly using language of bipartisanship, very consensual language and so on, but from somebody who isn't necessarily either bipartisan or consensual. So I think this ability to act to uh, prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet, you know, that great that great T.S. Eliot line. I think those characteristics are very common. They're not universal, but they're very common in political leaders, particularly those that have to fight elections. Leaders who don't have to fight elections can have different personalities which aren't nearly so empathetic or extrovert. I mean, think, think of Stalin, who we mentioned earlier. Stalin was Sphinx-like, not charismatic at all, really, in terms of his personal dealings. He had an ability to project charisma in his later career simply by force of sheer power. And there are some leaders, I think Xi Jinping has got a bit of that, actually. You look at this person, you think, my God, he's so powerful. And you look at them and they look so very solid and very powerful. And you think, God, there's something really significant there. But it's not something that naturally projects from their personality. But those who have to fight elections normally do have to have fairly extrovert personalities. And the people who often fail, there are exceptions to every rule, are those who simply don't have those characteristics. To think, you know, in, in recent British political history, the two leaders who really lacked, the, or three leaders who really lacked those characteristics, being Theresa May, who literally had almost no extrovert uh, potential whatsoever, and ultimately just disintegrated as a, as, as a public leader, but also to a lesser extent, Gordon Brown and John Major, who weren't really cut out for the extrovert business of glad-handing, projecting a personality, being positive and sunny and so on. And they definitely suffered thereby. So it's not to say that you can't get towards the top by not having actorish, extroverts, characteristics, but you're much, much more likely to get to the top if you do have them. If you look at most leaders across the Western world in the democratic age. They've basically been people who have got the skills of projection and persuasion that enable them to win elections, because that is mm. the gateway into being able to exercise power at all. And in that essay, which you referred to in 2017, which I did on leadership, that was the big test that I applied, is whether these people had the characteristics of persuasion, personality, empathy, projection, relationship with the spirit of the times, which is a bit more um, subjective. But nonetheless, you can sort of tell when people have, have got it and when they haven't got it. I mean, Joe Biden very much had it in 2019. You know, this, the guy who would be no nonsense, non-partisan, would really get on with dealing with the pandemic and so on. Anglo Merkel has had it in spades in the last few German elections. Put those together and you can generally tell who's going to hack it at the top of politics. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's zoom in on some kind of case studies. So, so Biden, you talk about he's quiet at the moment but we know from from your essay and elsewhere that he can be very chatty and verbose quite he's sort of there's some figure in there about him speaking for 55 minutes of the average one hour long meeting or something like that um uh now when you were first talking about writing on biden you know like the general mood was much more jaded about him i mean after all he had a pretty dreadful series of run at the uh, the primaries he only just squeaked through he was almost knocked out by bernie saunders who was on the fringe before and is i think at least as old as near as as, as biden and uh, he, his performance in debates was very bad his record in Washington before he became president involved a lot of very grubby compromises on, you know, important principle issues of principle like the death penalty, all of which is in your piece. And yet you dared to hope that the first hundred days were going to turn out and be radical and interesting. And I have to say, having had some doubts, like you were right. I mean, it looks like the most progressive government in Washington in half a century on the basis of this first hundred days. So tell us why you had the the confidence to stick with Joe through the kind of ups and downs of that very mixed career and the lacklustre start to primary season. Well, well, everything you say, Tom, was completely true, of course, about Biden and his weaknesses. And uh, they were reflected in the fact that he'd had two unsuccessful runs at the presidency before. He twice tries to get the nomination and he bombs both times so badly he doesn't even make it through to the last round when he's in the um, in the initial stages of, of the 2008 contest, which ultimately, of course, Obama wins. And, uh, back in the 1990s, when he has a tilt at the presidency, he doesn't get very far then either. The reasons I thought that once he got nomination, I thought that he would uh, both win the election, but also had the makings of being a very successful uh, president, were that in, he elections are on this leadership projection are essentially horse races between two people. And in the context of the implosion of Trump and Trump's total and abject failure to deal with the coronavirus, it looked a pretty sure bet that um, that Biden would win that election. And he did actually win all the votes were counted after these many weeks of voting. He did win it by a substantial margin in terms of the popular vote, which actually I think is the more significant in that first term presidents 
almost invariably get re-elected when they stand. So when people say it was closer than people thought, actually to unseat a first-term president is itself exceptional. And in the past, it's only happened with with very weak presidents, Carter, um, uh, Ford, who of course hadn't even been elected as, uh, as, as president before, and only a handful of cases uh, before that. So that was the basis of thinking he'd win the presidency. When he got the presidency, the reason I, I thought there was a good chance he'd be successful was that he had quite a lot of experience of government. He'd been vice president for eight years. He'd seen a whole generation of presidents close up from the Senate and knowing them personally. And his particular background, which was the formation of Joe as a politician, was in a, a circumstance of economic depression as a lower middle class guy growing up in Delaware on the Pennsylvania border, you know, in the New Deal era, in the 40s and 50s, with really big slump and massive economic dislocation, which was very, very similar to the situation which we had in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic at the beginning of, of 2021. And the way he was handling himself all the way through the election was very interesting. He all the time talked about COVID-19, getting people vaccinated, getting the economy moving and getting people into jobs. He was very much like FDR, focused on the big economic picture and people's sense of economic desperation that they had. And what he didn't get involved in was what in loose terms one might call the sort of woke agenda, which is huge in the democratic side of a lot of issues, which actually I think he was personally quite sympathetic to uh, and which could be quite divisive, which he didn't focus on at all and which could have been massive distractions and had been for Democrats in the past. And that is exactly how he played the, uh, the presidency. He united the Democrats behind a core economic agenda, which they are all pretty much united on, of big fiscal stimulus, jobs, 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 and his move from his, his COVID-19 fiscal stimulus to his infrastructure fiscal stimulus, his family fiscal stimulus. It is literally straight out of the FDR playbook. And because he lived through it and in class terms, because he's a human being, again, his own personal experience growing up, not quite on the breadline, but in that sort of very vulnerable lower middle class life. You know, his dad was a, a, a car dealer who was on, you know, thrown in the hard times and all that. Very unusually for modern presidents, he's actually got a personal experience which relates to mainstream America going through this economic crisis. I thought he was in a very good position from his own experience, both as a leader and his personal experience growing up during the New Deal, seeing FDR as a politician close up and knowing what it's like to be in that economic situation. I thought he was in a very good position to put all this together. I have to say he exceeded my expectations. The message discipline of Biden, and let's be clear, message discipline has never been his strong suit in the past. His message discipline is truly incredible. All the time, it's jobs, 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 stimulus, 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 consensus, consensus, consensus behind jobs and investment, um, and very skillfully um, framing the ideas debate around that. So, you know, the famous line of um, Ronald Reagan's that, uh, that uh, government uh, isn't the answer, government is the problem, you know, that in his, I think, in his, in his first State of the Union or his inaugural address. What did Biden do in his address to Congress last week, his first presidential address to Congress last week, he took that head on, but in a very folksy Biden way. He said, 
The Constitution opens with the words, we the people, he said, we the people are the government, not this alien force out there. It is we the people and it's we the people together that can get these big things done to get the economy moving, to get people into jobs and so on. So he's absolutely got this zeitgeist thing. And with the message discipline, his own experience and his skills of leadership, I think that's why he's starting to turn into a new FDR. Okay, so that's Biden. Let's move on to Narendra Modi, a man who's got more votes than just about anyone in history, but uh, a more sectarian and sinister figure, and one that looks to be handling, you know, misgoverning pretty badly in the light of the COVID crisis. And I'm going to name check now one of our editors club members in and asked, why did he give this brute such an easy time? Well, actually... I wrote the big profile of Modi before the latest COVID-19 crisis in India. But the analysis of Modi, which I spent a lot of time working on speaking to a lot of people who've been observing him at close quarters, I think actually has stood the test of time. Because the big argument of the Modi piece is that uh, his essential mission in politics is is, is to project himself as the leader of a new and pretty hard line Hindu nationalist thing in in India. And what he's seeking to do is by this relentless focus on raising the stakes on on Hindu nationalism, he was seeking to create a governing coalition which enables him to win through. And he, I think, sees his role in, in life and his political role as the leader of a new Hindu nation. But what he's not interested in, I argued in the in the book, was the problem-solving side of government. That is simply a means to an end of his big thing, which is to create this very militant, and he believes, successful new reinvention of India as as a Hindu-dominated nation, which is why he spends so much time and is so brilliant at campaigning as against governing. Now, the big case that I did at the end of that essay, because it appeared Uh, nearly two months ago now, was the farmers' protests. But actually, what's happened with COVID-19 demonstrates that in spades, at the same time as you had this massive second wave of COVID-19 across India, what was he doing? He was spending all his time in West Bengal doing these massive rallies, trying to win one of the last big states that the BJP, his Hindu Nationalist Party, hadn't won, in his quest to consolidate his hold over all of the big states in India in this um, Hindu nationalist mission. And so that was absolutely of a piece with the picture of Modi, the human being and the leader, which I painted in in the article. So I don't think I was giving him an easy time. I was trying to explain him. However, the great irony is that the COVID-19 crisis is so serious and is having such a big impact on people's lives in India. Of course, you know, just massive numbers of deaths and, uh, and hospitalizations and not enough supplies of oxygen and so on. But unlike the farmers' protests, which he appeared to be able to weather because it was a small subset of the population, it looks as if in this battle between projecting a new Hindu nationalism and governing, he has been found out this time. And it could be that because of his prioritization of this uh, Hindu nationalism campaigning over governing India, it could be because he's got that so badly wrong over COVID-19 that we've passed peak Modi. And in my defence, though I do seek to paint a rounded picture of him, including what was his phenomenal success electorally. I mean, he's won two massive landslides 
of, of unprecedented proportions in, since um, Indira Gandhi, since the 1970s in India, both 2014 and 2019. It may be that the very weaknesses which I identified, you know, in the use of this image of Modi, the hologram, and this hologram that's projected into all his election meetings, but which is, is ethereal and, and ultimately lacking in any substance beyond the campaigning um, uh, thing, that, that he may have been found out and we may now be past... Um, Past, uh, past peak Modi. But of course, when I was writing, we didn't have the second wave of COVID-19, so I couldn't deal with that. So do you think, because one thing that like really throws up and makes interesting is, you know, you, you've essentially got what used to be called the kind of great man theory of history. And like the piece you referenced back said, you know, that you can determine the outcome of an election by looking at whether the leaders are any good um, and whether they fit with the times in essence. But like in the case of Modi there, you've got a phenomenal election winner, unsavoury character, as you've said in lots of ways, but still a, a phenomenal election winner. And yet at some point, like these personalities do get snared on reality. I mean, do you think that when you have something really big happen, whether it's a financial crisis or a war or COVID-19, that actually uh, that shows you the limits sometimes of personality in politics and politics and, and, and kind of objective reality wins out? Well, I, I was I was never trying to say in any of these pieces or in my view of, of uh, leaders that you can separate them from the reality of the situations they're dealing with. But leaders often come to the fore because of those situations. You know, why does Churchill become prime minister in 1940? Because of the war. So the, you you can't you can't keep them separate in understanding them, though that is an objective set of, of a reality in terms of what's happening. You can't separate that from the leaders who have to deal with it. And in terms of what happens in getting through those circumstances, the leader does make a fundamental difference. I don't think there's anybody looking at Britain today who doesn't think that the whole way that the Brexit thing has gone hasn't been fundamentally affected by Boris Johnson. I don't think there's anybody looking at the COVID-19 crisis in India today which is an objective crisis, but nonetheless, anybody who thinks it hasn't been fundamentally affected by Modi's leadership, and looking at the terrible ravages of, of COVID-19 in the United States, I don't think there's anybody who doubts that both for the first half of this crisis when Trump was president and the second half when Biden is president, that they have fundamentally affected the way that this has been dealt with too. My next essay, as you said at the beginning, Tom is uh, is Ursula von der Leyen, my next big uh, leader. Can I just is, in, could we try and could we try and take because um, Ursula von der Leyen, and then after that, you're going to turn your mind to Boris Johnson, two very very different personalities. Because time's up, and I do want to bring in some audience questions as well. That uh, if you compare and contrast those two, I don't mind if you want to do this in terms of Europe versus Britain in terms of the handling of Brexit or just the different handling of the COVID crisis. What do you think out of that that very stark? von der Leyen versus Johnson comparison? Well, uh, 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 hugely uh, divergent and uh, very much rooted in their personalities as well, including the unlikely turn of events in, in Britain recently, which is that the uh, Boris Johnson has now become very popular because of his handling of the vaccine. But actually, if you know Boris, it's not so surprising because what Boris has been yearning for all the way through is his Churchill moment. His approach to everything is to throw everything at it and say the usual rules don't apply and you should simply go for it and we're going to make everything anew in a great Churchillian way, use the Churchill phrases and all of that. Now, actually, though I didn't agree with Brexit at all, obviously I was on completely the other side 
to him on that debate. That was basically the approach he took to getting Brexit through. You can't separate out his personality, including, you know, the uh, the, the uh, lying to the Queen over the prorogation of Parliament and literally um, turning upside down all of the normal political rules of the game to get Brexit through. And again, he's done the same with the vaccine. He basically told Kate Bingham to pay whatever it takes, do whatever it takes, and because I want this, I want this vaccine, and I want you know million tens of millions of doses and all of that. And in that second case, in the COVID one, actually treating it like a war situation, which is what he basically did with the vaccine, was actually the right thing to do. Whereas von der Leyen, who is the product of bureaucracy per se, and approached this, you know, with, with the detailed negotiations over price contractual standards, uh, you know, risk sharing and all of that. So treating it as if it was a kind of civil situation, which wasn't a wartime type of emergency, was exactly the wrong skill set for dealing with uh, the vaccine crisis, which goes a long way to explaining why the EU was so far behind the curve and why uh, Boris Johnson managed to corner so much of the world market in vaccines, which has has, uh, has served him so well. So even in dealing with this issue of, because obviously uh, all of these European countries being fairly wealthy countries were going to get vaccinated, I mean, it's obviously going to happen. We weren't going to have, you know, any leader who proved completely incapable of doing it would have got chucked out. But looking at the way that these two leaders approached it and the qualities they brought to it and the records that they had are absolutely rooted in their personality and experience. Andrew, thanks very much for all those reflections. It's fascinating stuff. I hope you and the audience enjoyed it. I hope you'll keep looking out for and reading Andrew's series as we bubble through the year. all from us thank you very much for listening this week as i said earlier if you want to find out more about the prospect editors club then go to prospectmagazine.co.uk slash learn dash more dash now learn dash more dash now you can also sign up for andrew adonis's the insider newsletter which is a weekly email newsletter that gives you the inside track on all that's happening in westminster by going to one of his columns on our website and filling in the box with your email address if you've enjoyed the podcast please do leave us a rating and a review in the meantime goodbye stay safe and we'll see you next week Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.